Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. Now I had intended to put up a conversation that I had with Justin Hamilton today because he recently featured me on his podcast, which is called Can You Take This Photo Please? And it's a lot of fun. I had a fascinating conversation with him and said more maybe than I would have thought I would have been comfortable with, but I was comfortable with it. And I think that's the sign of a good interviewer, perhaps, or uh, at least of my comfort with Justin, who's an excellent human being and a good friend. You should go see his show if you're in Melbourne. It's called Johnny Loves Mary Forever, 1994, and it's a lot of fun. I went along and saw it. And if you are in Melbourne and want to see my show as well, uh, it's been going really well and I'm very excited about it. It is called Everyone's a Winner and it's at the Swanston Hotel at 8.30pm. So uh, this conversation I pulled down from the cloud because my computer seems to have done an explosion inside itself and I can't get to the podcast I recorded with Justin. The computer's currently in the shop. So I got this off Dropbox and I'm borrowing a friend's computer to get it up to you in time, Jared McKenna, who I'm talking to today, is a really interesting human being. Normally, I feel quite uncomfortable about people who have very strong faith-based lifestyles because either I feel like they're very insular, they only want to be around their own kind of people, or I feel that they are judgmental, you know, like... Uh, that they look at you and they think, oh, you're going to hell. Now, Jared McKenna, who I had this conversation with in Sydney a couple of weeks ago, is not that kind of religious person. He puts his money where his mouth is in terms of his faith and he is incredibly generous and uh, puts himself in service of people in a way that I think embodies his idea of the nature of Christ. I am not a Christian and I was not brought up a Christian. I've really never been exposed personally or in my family life to somebody who had that kind of strong faith. Um, arguably, my dad is, is strictly Buddhist, but again, that's not a very faith-based practice. So I'm, I expected maybe to be made more uncomfortable by Jared's certainty in his belief. But I wasn't. We had a really interesting conversation. We met uh, about a year ago at Splendor in the Grass where we were both performing. And uh, ever since then, I've had a back and forth with him on Twitter and we occasionally chat. And I always, always enjoy talking to him. He has really interesting ideas. He is genuine and sincerely an activist for people who are suffering. And he's one of the most pleasant people I've ever really spent time with. He's very uh, just interesting and fun to be around. Let me know what you think. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I will stop blithering. Uh, come and see my comedy festival show if you're in Melbourne or tell your friends to do that. Uh, you're having tea with Alice and this is the conversation we had in a cafe. So beware the ambient noise in Sydney for a while Okay. I, I could do an introduction, but I don't know if it would be as effective as an introduction from you. Okay. Because I always get, you know, people introduce me and they say I'm a comedian. And I'm like, well, sort of. Or yeah. they say, oh, she's an ex-lawyer. And I'm like, well, that's not my whole, that's not what Shtick. I feel like today. Or yeah, whatever it yeah, is. yeah. Um, I'm 
Jared McKenna. I'm from Perth, Wadjuk country. Um, uh, I'm a dad of Tyson, who's 17. He's six foot four. People usually ask, why is he tall, dark and handsome when you're short, fair and odd looking? Um, that's because he looks like his uh, gorgeous mum, Teresa, who's one of the most phenomenal people I've ever met. And um, I wake up thankful every day um, that for some reason I tricked her into spending the rest of her life with me. And we live with um, 17 recently arrived refugees at First Home Project. And for a crust, I uh, work for World Vision Australia as a national advisor for faith and activism. And they lend me out to World Vision International, um, particularly in the Middle East and Eastern Europe, where I do things like helping uh, World Vision transition from uh, the youth we work with being recipients uh, of our aid to participants in social change, and that's kind of my passion. And I'm a pastor, a teaching pastor at West City in Perth, so that's... So when you're not doing nice things for other people, you're doing nice things for other people? No, um, um, the, the best kept secret is how much fun it is. Like, um, don't be fooled by all the noble kind of... Um, it's just the best way I've found to have a great time. Um, uh, if there's anything better, I'll probably do that. So it's purely selfish reasons that um, we're having a ball. I'm a big believer in that. Um, how did you get brainwashed into finding those things fun? Or has it always been a thrill <laughs> for you? Um, oh, wow, where to start um, and how much to give away. To be really vulnerable? It's not like it's been recorded. Um, no, just ignore what, the giant metal. <laughs> it's, it's quite a, like... It's a little Beautiful disconcerting. Um, uh, well, yeah, to make myself a little bit vulnerable, I, I don't know how to talk about that without talking about um, my faith, which is a bit awkward. It's a bit like talking about sexuality in public. Like um, uh, People do it. We have a whole Mardi Gras for it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, uh, so to jump on my float, and um, I was 13 when... Um, and pretty depressed as a kid. I'm, I'm dyslexic and uh, at ADD, and um, like most people with dyslexia, apparently our IQ is higher than most of the population, and yet our rate of suicide and depression um, uh, it exceeds the rest of the population as well. There's nothing worse than having ideas and not being able to express them. Hmm. It's hard. Welcome to my childhood. But, you know, like... Um, and I think as a kid, I dealt with that by uh, being sharp with my tongue and cutting kids down and those kind of power games that go on in primary school. And when that didn't work, um, more brutish kind of power games of throwing fists and, and that kind of stuff. Oh, you're a punchy kid. Amazing. Yeah. You're so gentle now. So don't, don't let the... Um, so that's been part of it. And in all honesty, in terms of like those natural responses that evolution has trained us to have in panic situations my natural response still is fight um uh albeit as a peace award-winning non-violence trainer that works for greenpeace and rising tide and training activists so i would say that that is the thing how hmm. can you teach someone not to be violent if you've never had a violent urge in your life yeah gandhi would say the same thing uh, gandhi um uh, particularly I was working with Abdul Ghaffar Khan or Badshah Khan who um, uh, was a, um, uh, with 
he was from what is now Afghanistan and was a part of a warrior people and he started the Kitmagars which was a, a Muslim army, um, non-violent army that um, was uh, essential for non- Gandhi's non-violent revolution and Gandhi said that with a violent person he actually said it a bit more gender specific but we'll adapt the quote with a violent person uh, I can do something uh, but with a coward I can do nothing and I for, for me at least my understanding of non-violence has actually got more to do with trans violence the, the transmutation or the transfiguration of, of um, our shadow and that as Jung would insist, the shadow is 90% gold, that it's not bad, it's um, what is um, suppressed and unrealised, and if we can actually um, uh, face that and confront that and hold that in the light, we can see that stuff which we hate about ourselves is actually the stuff where our our best stuff actually resides and our our true stuff can come to the surface. interested in this uh, slightly tangentially because I think that uh, a lot of people have bad qualities hmm. or what are called bad qualities and you'd think, oh well, this person is constantly fighting. Hmm. Why don't they change that? And it's always or almost always because that, that quality is the flip side of something that they really like about themselves, huh. almost completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, people who have addictive personalities, yeah. that's tied to the fact that they have this great capacity for passion and involvement yeah. and yeah, engagement yeah. and love. Or but enough about it is. me. Yeah. <laughs> or, or whatever it is. If, or and I think if we can understand that, it makes it a lot easier to realize everybody's just as messed up broken and problematic as as we are and it's a lot easier to be gentle with ourselves and gentle with others as well that um people are often with you know in horrible ways sometimes trying to do the best with what they've been served um and that makes it easier for me to well, uh, Dr. Cornel West is a big influence on me. Uh, he used to be at Princeton University, head of African American Studies and Religion. He says, sometimes the best we can do is love our crooked neighbour with our crooked self. And I'm trying to bring my crookedness into something that could look like the kind of world that I think might be possible. Well, there's that uh, Tolstoy thing um, in War and Peace where he introduces these, this character of two beautiful sisters, and mm. one is more beautiful than the other. Mm because she is imperfect. She yeah. has a short lip and it's fascinating. And the other one is perfect and beautiful, but yeah. nowhere near as engaging yeah. or interesting or beautiful, even yeah. though she's more perfect. Or, uh, or Leonard Cohen's It's it's a Cracks Where the Light Gets In. It's, mm. um, I, I think, um, well, as we we're walking up, coming here, our discussion around power and when when power gets reframed for us other than um, manipulating or coercing others and power becomes a discussion of what actually transforms rather than merely suppresses and, mm. and conquers. Um, it's this strange paradox which is at the centre of like, I mean the greatest irony of Christianity is that it, it becomes, we side with the crucifiers instead of the crucified but the centre of my faith is actually um, God all powerful is it revealed as all vulnerable mm. and and here you have like the king of the universe um, suffering weak defecating on himself on a what is a tool of capital execution and uh, 
Zizek likes to say that um, uh, fundamentalists don't get the joke of Christianity, that it's actually a comedy. He draws on Kierkegaard and Kierkegaard's image when he was talking about the incarnation is that a town is awaiting a new king and what runs through the centre of the town as they line the streets is not uh, the king they're expecting but a little dog. And Kierkegaard says that, um, uh, well Zizek says reflecting on Kierkegaard is that in fact what we get um, in the Christian faith and what fundamentalists don't get the joke of, don't get the punchline. Is this that God is all-powerful, is revealed as this all-vulnerable? Mm. And that um, this discussion of weakness is actually a discussion of power, that this discussion of those on the margins actually come into the centre, that which is shameful becomes untoxified and actually becomes kind of places that we can exist instead of run from, but See, find I a read, home in. I read the Bible semi-late because my dad, uh, when I was 12 or 13, said that I should read the Bible and the Torah and the Quran. Great. And I was... And did you finish War and Peace? <laughs> yes. I'm so impressed. Did you finish was, the Bible? I uh, was a show-off at that point to myself. <laughs> I wanted to be a certain kind of person, so nice. I thought I had to read these things and know them. Um, but I always... I don't know. I was kind of a romantic as a hmm. sort of 13, 14-year-old, and I always found the the words of Christ on the cross really upsetting and tragic. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, just, Daddy, why have you forsaken me? That's... Mm. I found, like, I found that really heartbreaking. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and upsetting. In a way that I didn't... Uh, well, I can't really talk about this on the podcast. definitely cut that out I don't need <laughs> I don't need that trouble <laughs> I've got different kind of trouble like an entity yeah well, what's what's fascinating for, for me is how um, uh, the Quran does actually make sense like mm. um, uh, and, and much more sense like so the whole thing in the Quran where um, Jesus actually isn't um, crucified that mm. he ascends from the cross which I mean for me and I, I mean, I believe some crazy stuff. I believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead. That's, you know, that's pretty out there. But, that's pretty out but, there. Um, you watch a lot of Walking Dead? <laughs> I've never, I've never, <laughs> what I find fascinating about like the whole zombie genre is it's almost like our projection, not um, that we're the living undead, but th- this is the dead living, which is something yeah. actually different. It's on the other side of death gone through, yeah. um, not um, uh, death conquering the living and and uh anyway it's a whole nother discussion but i do find it interesting given our like unprecedented ecological crisis given that we spend 26 times the money that we need to eradicate absolute poverty in the world on arms each year that in the midst of this like huge collective panic and anxiety um we find comfort in the the living undead like there's something uh, in those apocalyptic kind of visions that yeah it's all I think it's always the simplicity of it <laughs> yeah and also the idea that you might not have to care about your family anymore yeah yeah there comes a point you know, where you can actually knock them off yeah, like yeah because they're not you're, no, they're not really your family and, yep. and in fact you are held back by your attachment to them if you can't kill them then you're vulnerable which is uh, the perfect um, kind of narrative for um, 
self-realized, self-assessed. Um, um, like it's how we relate to the body, it's how we relate to society. Um, we are the ubermensch. We don't need other people. We don't need family. Like, yeah, why it's the capitalist it's dream is that you can kill your family. They mean nothing to you and it's only about you and you yep. You are the most important yeah. thing. And so the reality... you have real thoughts and feelings. That's, yeah, it's like we're, being a we're the centre of our own stories. Yeah. Um, uh, we, we live lives like we're in a reality TV show where we can't see the cameras and where we're the main protagonists and uh, everything revolves around us um, so we have no larger stories to to hold us um, or, or to hold our pain or to process our pain um, and for something to actually be um, large enough and confronting enough um, to 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 check our egos and drag us into something that's more than us is hugely difficult hugely it's difficult very difficult everyone's so conscious of their place in any story they're marking it yeah. all the time i think that's why this flight disappearance is so frightening to everyone yeah. because we thought we lived in a world where no one could disappear even if we wanted to and no one really wants to i think that's yeah. why people are making less fuss than you would expect about the nsa because there's mm. sort of a slight uh, reassurance in knowing that somebody's watching you know <laughs> we like the idea yeah. you know in a weird perverse really, way really there's a file on me like yeah. a, oh, oh yes. Like oh. finally, my activism is like validated. You know, conspiracy theorists always. Yeah. Oh, the government's watching me. You know, they're they're going to come for me. It's yeah. it's all you want to be that. And but so, how disappointing is if they came for everybody else and not me? Like yeah. I really wanted to be that well, important. But yeah. like, surely my campaigning was more successful than. Yeah, I I, I wrote angry tweets. That's right. <laughs> But I do think that is part of it. I think that like the the flight disappearance is a shock to us who assumed we were being watched all the time. That mm. someone can disappear in this world is sort of impossible. Mm. And then secondly also, yes, that we want to know that we're being watched. And if in for most people these days in the absence of God mm. it might as well be anyone, somebody, some bored security guard. Yeah, yeah. Or or just I think um uh, like religion itself, the word from the Latin, I mean, you're heaps more educated and better educated than myself. But um, uh-huh. uh, as you'd know from uh, religio, where we get the word ligaments, um, mm. to, to rebind together, what holds together. Mm. And um, e- even the new atheism uh, is a way of holding our world together. Quite often, conveniently, it's a veiled way of having shots at Islam um, through a generalised sense of religion being bad. I find it fascinating that the the rise of what might be not this like beautiful, rich tradition of atheism um, uh, that is actually present in the West, but this this shallow, very thin atheist fundamentalism, which at the same time of the invasion of Iraq became hugely popular, that we have Tony Blair starting the Tony Blair Faith Foundation uh, while he's invading Iraq, carrying a Bible and a Quran, getting off planes, looking very important, trying to read and work out, oh, why are these people at war? What's actually going on in the most like incredibly naive way where, to quote William Kavanagh, um, acting like the, the um, uh, Western 
hegemonic imagination and imperial imagination, we can bomb these primitive religious people into a higher rationality where um, uh, we'll liberate them from uh, their, their silly little stories and, um, and are very quick to pick up on certain aspects that don't fit with us. And it's, it's just ridiculous how, um, how clever availing it is of problems that our society has itself. I do a joke about that. So what becomes fascible is who becomes invisible. Yeah. And so for us in Australia, one of the only nations in the world where we can not have porous states because we are girt by sea, mm. um, uh, like the reality is as we sit here and, and drink what is actually very good green tea, it's nice. um, there's 1,138 children that are in detention who have committed no crime other than fleeing war-torn countries. But they're invisible, and the, the mall, which is in the background here, continues. Um, Ursula Le Guin has this incredible story, and I can't remember the, the name of it. It's a short story. It's called about The Others, maybe? Or it begins with an O. Far out. I know the one you mean. It's about a town which seems perfect. And uh, as she's into the rhythm of the story, she changes it and goes, but if that's too utopian and, and too purist, maybe there's also orgy, and, and sets another utopian uh, vision as well. And so you feel it, it's kind of like the kind of diverse vision that like, we could all sign up to. Like, it's, Ursula Le Guin's amazing she's phenomenal. that stuff. For the flip, she's, just the, suddenly you, you're halfway through a story and you're like, oh, whoa, my brain. And like, the final flip is that all of this is possible because there is this creature who's actually a child that um, is, is locked in a cellar somewhere and everybody knows where it is and everybody knows that the peace of society and how well everything functions and how perfect everything is depends on our cruelty and projection onto this other who we lock away. Well, this is the logic that is being used by, at the moment, the government where, like, I will agree that it's a good thing to prevent people dying at sea to stop the boats. Of course. Yeah, yeah. But in order to do that, they are using people. Yeah. They are using people yeah. as part of a mechanism yeah. to discourage other people. And pe people get on That's boats wrong. for the same reason people jump from burning buildings. It's if you stay, you'll die. Yeah. And that's what kind of gets like, of course it's horrific that people are getting on boats and we don't want people to get on boats, but if we don't provide some way for people to leave, like there is, there is no cure. So my favourite kind of like image or illustration, because I think unless we frame it and zoom out to the whole issue, um, I tell this little story about a burning building and the front of the building has a hundred windows and there is one window where the firefighters have put up one ladder and that's the UNHCR, which means there's 99 windows where people are fleeing this burning building and they can't get out. But there are a few people on a, a few windows who are asking for money and then with a brick breaking windows and allowing people to jump. And they're the people smugglers. Huh. And we're all focused on the people smugglers, those evil people smugglers, bad people smugglers. The problem is the people smugglers, Labor and Liberal love to kind of scapegoat the like people smugglers is a problem. And then we say, oh, it's so terrible that they're jumping and they're throwing their kids out of the window as well. The question should be, like, this building's on fire. How do we actually put the fire out? And how do we provide a safe way for these people to f flee from these kind of situations? Even if you don't want people coming to Australia, even if you're like, we're a closed society, mm. we don't want immigrants, mm. fine. 
which is actually not true because there are heaps of people coming to Australia yeah. and heaps of overstayers. Yeah. They, most of them just look like me. Yeah. They're Irish or British backpackers who are, are drunk on staying in friends and couches and, and all the rest. Um, so they are here, but no one kicks up a fuss about them. I just think that there's, you don't need to be cruel to be strict. If, like, yeah. I don't agree with the, with the attitude that we should be closed mm. to uh, people, whatever their race. <laughs> but even, if you, agree, even like, if you agree that we should protect our society by closing our borders mm. and that people should never be able to arrive by boat and be accepted, mm. that's a logically consistent position. Send them back to the beginning Syria. of the line to you know well send them back to a, a camp which or is the best thing ever isn't it because like one of the families we live with are from Afghanistan and uh, in terms of when people talk about queues and proper ways to like for, for them to go through the proper channels quote unquote uh, they would have to go to Kabul where it's, it's already life threatening where they were before let alone going to um, Kabul where the Australian embassy is, but Australia keeps the embassy's location a secret for security reasons. So you can't even find like the no, the supposed um, right way to go. There, I mean, there's no right way in a situation like no. that. No. But I, I just think the point being that you know, if you want to be really strict and brutally yeah. strict and merciless about it, mm. you don't need to then also be cruel. Yeah. To say no one by boat will be settled in Australia doesn't yeah. mean that you get put people somewhere that's actually really unpleasant and terrific. Yeah. You don't need to drive the point home by using people as some sort of horrific example. Yep. Which is what they're doing. Actually. Exactly what it's they're like, doing. Uh, whatever it is, that fort... There's a, there's a little island in the harbour which used to have hangings on it, Fort mm. Denison, where they'd just hang people, wow. criminals. Yeah. And so when you came into the harbour, you saw this. Mm. And that's what they're doing still. That's so primitive. We were doing that 200 years ago and we stopped doing it. And now we've just revived that tradition of, look how how badly you will suffer if you do wrong by us. Well, to go back to Ursula Le Guin, it's the child in the cellar in which our utopia survives on. We get to feel this false safety because we know that we can project onto them all the stuff that we don't want to look about at ourselves. So in terms of like white Australia policy and and that kind of history, in terms of the history of genocide and, and invasion here, in terms of Indigenous nations across Australia, um, an easier way than not dealing with that. And I mean, Feel free to edit out any of the like, mm, Pastor Jared's a little bit too heavy on the Bible, I'm going to edit that out. But in, in terms of for me, is it like the greatest irony for me as a, a Christian is that, that Christ says that um, basically he's camouflaged in the lonely, the lost, the last, and the, those considered least, mm. and, and says um, <laughs> the... the the poetry, the final judgment scene that he sets is, is like you've got um, the goats and the sheep on either side and both sides say, when did we see you naked and not clothe you? When did we see a strain- you a stranger and not welcome you in? The word there is foreigner and not welcome you in. Uh, when did we see you hungry and not feed you? Uh, when did we see you in prison and not visit you? And Jesus' words, word for word, I don't know why fundamentalists will go, 
literal seven day creation, literal seven day creation. And then when it comes to sell all you have and give to the poor, they just skip over that. Or passages like this, they go, eh, maybe it's a metaphor at this stage. Yeah. Um, he says, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. Yeah. So from like a, a biblical imagination perspective, what we're doing on Manus, on Nauru, on Christmas Island, is we're actually locking up the very presence of God's transformative presence mm. that our future, our transformation, is actually locked up offshore. Mm. And actually, what would actually draw us into um, being a more compassionate nation, what would draw us into um, uh, our own transformation, we deny and, and we treat as outsiders. think that that is sort of vaguely similar to what you're saying in Definitely. that these people who need help the help is an opportunity for you to be worthy um, it's not about us being noble or, or good or whatever it's about us actually doing something with like how messed up and and actually going instead of us fearing those parts of ourselves that if we actually could trust that maybe love could transform them and maybe we can find communities in which like AA says the first step is admitting you have a problem mm. and realizing that we've all got problems and we all deal with it in the I mean some of us are addicted to success in the most socially respectable ways and it's exactly the same di dynamics as um, people whose alcoholism has them sleeping on the streets tonight on Sydney. Yeah, it's um, what hits your buttons or what you've been trained to hit your own buttons or yeah. what you think Or is the complexity of all that stuff that, that tied up. ties up together for that. I would say two things, um, one slightly tangential, they're both slightly tangential. One is um, if you think that you in Nazi Germany mm. you would have helped the Jewish people then you should be calling up and seeing what you can do about these refugee camps yeah. now. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And then the second one is, when did you read the Narnia books? Did you ever? <laughs> I read the Narnia books uh, the first year of art school um, uh, because uh, a very uh, gorgeous woman I was going out with at the time said you're a Christian and you hadn't read this stuff yeah. like I've read this stuff you need to read it and so um, I, I was in art school 18, oh. 19 when I first read it see now I always find this interesting because I read them and I felt tricked at the end I was like oh he was Jesus all along <laughs> you know because I, 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 there's this amazing beautiful mythology and then yeah, at the yeah. end I was like oh a yeah. bit but I imagine that for somebody who was brought up with faith that would have been amazing. It would have been that like twist at the end. You're like, oh, he was Jesus all along. This is amazing. Um, Tyson had read the whole series and, and Tolkien by the time he was 10. Um, <laughs> uh, he's, it's really unfair. He's incredibly bright and mm. good at basketball and good looking and popular. Like, oh, dear. Um, uh, we took Tyson to see him actually here when we were in Sydney because we were visiting my folks who used to live in Wolfson Craft and we're staying with them and... Um, 
on a lift-out section from the Sydney Morning Herald, I think it was, um, there was a, a picture of uh, from the new movie that was coming out and it said, um, God comes to Hollywood. And Tyson, like, as a huge fan of the books, was like, what does it mean? And so we tried to explain to him and he, I don't know, must have been nine at the time, I guess, that, well, it's, it's a bit of an allegory for... Aslan is Jesus and and this kind of stuff and we're like we'll see if he gets it and we're like when you watch the movie so we took him to the movies to see it see if you can pick up whether you think uh, um, there's some similarities between the gospel and and so Tyson watched it and um, we came out of the movies afterwards and he was like that was awesome that was so amazing and we're like do you think it's Aslan's like Jesus and he's like nah and we're like you don't think that Nani is a bit like the gospel and he's like nah and he's like, can we get ice cream? And so we went to go get ice cream. And as we're walking to get ice cream, it's maybe, I don't know, five, ten minutes later, he interrupts the conversation to say, Aslan's not like Jesus because um, Jesus died for his enemies, loving them, and Aslan bit the witch's head off. And Tyson's reading, as a nine-year-old, is that it doesn't go fiercely enough into the, the revelation of a nonviolent God. Um, uh, but, I mean, it's back at Zizek and the joke of Christianity, but often Christians are the last to laugh. That's true. That's true. And un- unfortunate, really. I mean, as a comedian, I think it's important. <laughs> I, I think laughter is important. Yeah. Um, if only because I see laughter as a sign that you get it. Yeah. Like, that's yeah, yeah. the signal that you can get it. Someone can be listening and nodding yeah. and have their own thing going on in their head. But they're very rarely, and I exclude ironic racism from this, they're very rarely getting the wrong joke. Yeah. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. If you make a joke and you build it out of ideas that you have mm. and you present it and you want like, here's this idea I have, I'm going to lead mm. you into this idea. Yeah. And then you have the moment where they connect the dots. You can't yeah. connect dots in someone else's head. Yeah. But then they laugh. That's the automatic reaction to That's this right. like new sparking neuron in your brain. And, and it's incredibly disarming. Yeah. Like uh, the, the way that um, humour is able, like it's the most incredible non-violent weapon um, to both disarm, but also to change power dynamics. To like the stories of Desmond Tutu um, uh, being on a uh, construction site, and all the construction workers are these huge white South African, and this is during a, apartheid. And there's wet concrete that's just been laid, and uh, you have to to walk along a, a plank to get from one section to another. This huge guy folds his arm with his uh, helmet on, on top of his head and he says, I don't get out of the way for monkeys. And Desmond Tutu, like, surrounded by these, like, he's clearly outnumbered. Even if non-violent, uh, violence was an option he wanted to put on the table, mm. it's not going to be effective. Desmond Tutu, um, his response is to smile and say, ah, but I do, and then gestures for him to walk across first. And there's, there's just this in, in, incredible way that um, Jung says uh, laughter, um, uh, laughter always engages the shadow. It's a really good way of dealing with fear mm. first because you reveal something as laughable and then you can actually deal with it. If you yeah. laugh at your fear, then you're acknowledging it. Yeah. Uh, I, I do a joke about domestic violence that I thought was going to be an audience splitter. I thought right. it was going to divide audiences. Uh, 
but every single time I've told it, country New South Wales, every time Oxford in England, it gets a massive laugh. Yeah. And it's because, you know, because that's true. We it's are true. so scared yeah, yeah, yeah. of the, the stranger yeah. in the night and yeah. most violence. That's is, right. And is, abuse. And yeah. But you can't hate someone that you're laughing with. Yeah. That's another thing. Yeah, yeah. And also, um, there's this evolutionary biology theory, uh, which is that laughter is your brain's reward for resolving cognitive dissonance. Nice. Wow, that's so amazing. So you're like, where are my glasses? Oh, my glasses are on my head. Ha, ha. So you have these two thoughts or the pull back and reveal. I thought it was one way and then it's the other way. Huh. So your brain rewards you for resolving this problem. Hmm. And then, as you say, it opens up. You yeah. laugh and then... Like the evolutionary purpose is going, well, what did I get wrong? Yeah. What What did I have wrong that made me have that yeah. wrong impression that I've now resolved? Yeah. So you tell a joke at the beginning of the speech. That's a cliche. Colbert and, and Stuart are the most yeah. oh, amazing totally. uh, influences on mm. people's minds because they make people laugh and then and they tell you the truth. Yeah. So in order to get people to change their minds about anything, mm. it's very difficult to argue someone out of an entrenched position. It's, mm-hmm. Or at least, even even if you do, they're going to be resentful and angry that yeah. their logic doesn't hold up. Yeah. If you make them laugh, they yeah. come to you. They totally. make the connections themselves. Totally. They're not pushing them off a fortified position. You're yep. bringing them in. And I think that's why I'm a comedian. Not because I'm a funny person, naturally. You are a funny I'm, I'm not. person, but your your ability to to do that and and seeing you do that is um, uh, uh, after when we met at Splendor in the Grass um, uh, and seeing you do your craft and seeing Will Anderson there with you do do his shtick as well um, uh, and uh, seeing Tom. Uh, Ballard, yeah, yeah uh, do his thing. Um, I made a deliberate decision that I, I need to learn from comedians in terms of communication because um, your ability to, to cut through and relate to every person, like to, to actually um, uh, speak in such a way and say things that you otherwise couldn't say unless they were disarmed yeah. with laughter. Yeah. It's phenomenal. It's yeah, phenomenal. I would challenge any bigot to watch mm. Tom Ballard and walk away yeah. as entrenched in their hatred of yeah. gay people as they were beforehand. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, he, and he does it um, in the most like generous, mm. generative way. Like um, where it would be so easy and rightly so to just rip another one. Like yeah. um, and to tell people they're wrong. Yeah. And yeah. to say you're wrong. I'm a human being too. Yeah. No one's going to change their mind if they don't think you're a human being. But if you make them laugh, yeah. if you bring them into your world and you you tell them a problem that you mm. had with your boyfriend mm. and they laugh because they've had that problem with their wife, yeah. they don't even need to be convinced. Yeah. They are. Cheston was such like a proponent of fairy tales. Um, mm. And I think activists um, need to be able to not... I don't think ideology transforms. Uh, no. I think imagination does. And yeah. I, I think the, the power of um, the arts, the, the power of, of comedy, the power of music to actually um, s- speak to a language that isn't merely words. 
and and is um, not irrational, but maybe irrational, mm. as well as rational being engaged as well. But there there is something more maybe primal or um, intuitive that is also being engaged in in those ways. And I think that's the only way that we can have real cut through on these kind of issues. Well, we tie our survival mechanisms into stories. Yeah, it's how we can know that things that don't look dangerous are dangerous more than just having somebody die and then the people who don't die were the ones who recognized that it was dangerous like that's your argument (laughs) for evolution (laughs) but you know you learn things by stories you have an awareness that certain kinds of people or certain kinds of things are Mm. dangerous Mm. and that's not a logical thing that's a i mean i've talked about this in another podcast but we know that guns can kill you. Mm. And if you see a gun... I was in um, Damascus and a guy mm. got shot in the leg and I saw, I saw the gun and I got the fight or flight reaction. Yeah, yeah. I'd never seen anyone be shot by a gun. Mm. I've never been shot by a gun. How mm. do I know a gun is dangerous, mm. really, other than stories? Mm-hmm. That's, that's how I know. Yeah, yeah. And so stories changed my biology yes. like they changed my yeah. physical reaction yeah. to an object yep. because which brings us back to the conversation around sacred texts and um, uh, I think what's almost miraculous if you want to use that language is, is, is not just the bits which actually look like love but all the bits that are like made the cut that look like the rest of us as well that it, like, as much as uh, we often go to uh, Holy Scriptures looking for a, a revelation of the divine, mm. it's as much a revelation of all of us and our wrestling, um, like Jacob, w- w- with that unknown until we walk away, maybe limping, mm. but walk away differently, knowing m- more about all of us. I-, I spent a week sitting at the feet of Dr. Vincent Harding, who... Um, was handpicked by Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. as his speechwriter and strategist and wrote Dr. King's most provocative speech ever that he gave uh, Riverside Church in 67, uh, a year to the day before he was assassinated. Mm. Um, some people, um, uh, Tavis Smiley, uh, Dr. Cornell West, directly tie his assassination to this speech. It's called mm. the Beyond Vietnam speech, where he names the unholy trinity of racism militarism and materialism um and dr harding sounds wrote, like australia <laughs> it's it's amazing how pertinent it it still is today um to our, our situation um uh and uh, susan heschel um the daughter of uh rabbi uh joshua abraham heschel um still refers to dr king as a prophet that we must listen to um today uh Dr. Harding, one of the things that he said to us on the first day, and it was a group, a small group of activists from around the world uh, spending time with him, 82 years old now, and he said, and he said it repeatedly over our first day with him, people innately know what to do with stories. People innately know what to do with stories. People innately know what to do with stories. And it's like um, my study in terms of like, Art school and it's good philosophy. Use of the rhetorical uh, triplet, uh, by the way. Oh, thanks. <laughs> do Very what, powerful. Do what I can. <laughs> I'll, I'll throw some alliteration in later on, if you like. Um, 
Sorry. I very rarely get thrown. That, no, um, sorry. No, 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 not at all. Uh, no, I lost it's gone. it. Oh it's no, gone. I've it's diverted you. No, 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 not, not at all. I have to go in five minutes anyway. Okay. Oh. Hey, thanks. This has been fun. Yeah, it is. Okay, yeah. You have such a good conversation last. It's a shame that we don't have longer to talk. Well, another time. I mean, we can hang out and not necessarily with a microphone. <laughs> yes. It's uh, slight. It's, it's um, yeah, if you listen to the one with Henry, you remember mm. just ta- us talking about how it, like, changes the way you talk. Just knowing that you're recorded changes it's, it's the way like you talk. It's like having a friend that you haven't met at the table. Mm. And so um, you, you're, you're always considering not only, okay, how is Alice going to hear this, but this person I don't really know yet, how, yeah. how's this going to connect to them? And, and where, where I don't know their story and how do I, you, you're how more do I talk maybe in vulnerably the way you talk. about where I'm coming from and trust that it, um, in the way that you're speaking, it holds a kind of hospitality that their story is welcome at the table as well, which is a hard thing to do with like something like radio where the things that they're saying back, they're saying into, you know, yeah their iPhone as they're listening or whatever. Yeah, I think it's... it's um, One of the things that has changed about the way everything is, the way our culture is, is mm. that everyone is a little bit self-aware. Mm. And everyone... I don't know if it's an entirely bad thing. Hmm. But it's a selfie effect. It's a selfie effect. Yeah. It's, 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 and it's in many ways it is selfishness. But on the other hand... It's also people being mm. careful, mm. which is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, Irish philosopher uh, Peter Rollins talks about how our Facebook profiles function as a piece of ideology and um, how carefully constructed our, our Facebook selves are. And I, I've taken that and we'll, we'll sometimes talk about when Thomas Merton in his first uh, dialogues with the Dalai Lama uh, in the 60s and in his uh, Asian journal, um, uh, his language of the false self where he's bringing conversations about uh, Christian mysticism and um, Tibetan Buddhism into conversations together and his, I, I think if Merton was with us today he would talk about instead of our false self and true self he'd talk about our Facebook self and our true self yeah. and it's that's one of the hard things in real conversation is to actually get get behind um, our our airbrushed and uh, the angle of the photos and um, create the kind of safety where we can actually be vulnerable well to nicely link back to the start of the conversation where that kind of weakness where transformative power is Mm. actually seen that's a hard thing to do when people are constantly looking at how do, how's this going to help me climb the next step on the corporate ladder or get the next gear ironically defensive about Even people who tell you things that are not going well, it's sort of part yeah. of the story. Yeah. But then again, in the same way as people talk a lot about the bad impact of, that religion has had on people's behavior, people Definitely. have gone to war in the name of God and so on. Sure. But if you think about the number of times somebody has not killed or not stolen hmm. because they were thinking of how they would look to God, Maybe 
I don't know if this is a stretch, but maybe something similar is happening with people feeling like they're being watched all the time. Hmm. Either everything becomes permissible or people suddenly start to think, well, maybe I won't do this bad thing because I don't like hmm. how it's going to look. Maybe I won't say this racist thing on Facebook because hmm. somebody might see it. Hmm. I'm, I'm so, so the other continental philosophy yeah. has actually become we are the other that we feel like our... I'm cautiously optimistic that maybe just as a thought experiment maybe this constantly self-examined life will lead us to a better way of behaving (laughs) Let's hope something does Yeah, (laughs) We're all looking for connection right? Now we have it (laughs)